a disclaimer, drugs are bad, okay? If you do them, you're bad, because drugs are bad, okay? It's a bad thing to do drugs, so don't be bad by doing drugs, okay? Because that'd be bad, because drugs are bad, okay? My name is Toolman, and I'm making the tip Show on KUHS Denver. You're tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. This is episode six, titled "Dance Safe and the War on Drugs." My guest this evening is Mitchell Gomez from the nonprofit organization Dance Safe. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mitchell. Yeah, it's great to be here. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I've been involved with Dance Safe for a few years now. I'm uh, acting as their national outreach director, so I oversee uh, volunteer training, event outreach, new literature development, uh, and basically uh, my job boils down to taking the tools that Dance Safe has and figuring out how to best get them into the hands of the communities that we serve. And so that's what I spend my time doing is training volunteers and going to events and uh you know, doing what Dance Safe does. Nice. I'm assuming you have a little bit of a of an electronic music background that that precedes. Yeah. Dance Safe. Yeah, I've I've been in the rave scene since I was in high school, basically. Nice. Uh, and for a long time, was one of the first professional fire spinners in the United States back in uh, 2000 2001 when fire spinning was first becoming a, a oh, thing. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And so that sort of got into working in the industry that way. Worked as a promoter for a while. Um, and yeah, I've been part of the electronic music community for longer than I haven't at this point. Um, nice. Yeah. Which is a weird, a weird point to be at for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you, you've had more years in electronic music in your life than years not in right, electronic right, music. Right, nice. Right. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think I'm just about there. Actually, I, I think I'm over that mark as well. I think I've been in electronic music for about 16 years and I'm 29. So right. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, so it's so. a magic, it's a magic point to be for sure. <laughs> when you, you've been yeah. in the scene longer than you weren't. So. Definitely. Definitely. So you were a promoter for a while. Uh, so I worked with a bunch of promoters in Central Florida for the most part during oh, the nice. sort of Florida Breaks wave. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, when, when, do, do when you DJ know, uh, I see Reign Supreme. Do you know Brett Holland of uh, um, Shiznit Recording? Yeah, yeah. That you actually, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've released with him and I went to Burning Man with him back oh, in awesome. 2011. Awesome. Small world, man. <laughs> uh, all right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Dance Safe and what it is that you guys do? Yeah, so like you said, uh, Dance Safe's a nonprofit organization. We're a health education and harm reduction nonprofit. And so the basic idea is that we try to provide uh, the nightlife and electronic music community with the tools that they need to be as healthy as they can in their decision making, mm-hmm. whether that's dealing with hearing, where we provide free you know, hearing protection at events, uh, whether it's keeping everyone hydrated. Uh, accurate non-biased drug information uh we gave out somewhere in the neighborhood of 170,000 to 200,000 condoms last year wow yeah, yeah so a lot of condoms uh and the thing that we're sort of most controversially known for is bringing on-site drug checking services to events where we'll set up at events and people can actually bring us their pills powders blotter whatever it is that mm-hmm. they're they're consuming and we can actually take a tiny tiny sample of that and chemically test it uh to see if it is what the person uh believes it is mm-hmm. and so these test kits basically test for primary composition it doesn't test for cutting agents it doesn't test for things like that but uh it does tell you what the primary composition of that that substance is 
Uh, and the reason that we do this is that because black markets are always adulterated markets. Oh yeah. Uh, and but more recently, even even more so. Yeah, I mean it's 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 the nature of black markets itself. But for sure, the the sort of you know quote unquote club drug market mm-hmm. uh, has gotten in some ways worse over the years. We've actually recently seen a a small correction in the other direction, but it's it's small and it's recent, and so it's hard to know. Um, but you know, just like back in the 1930s when alcohol was illegal and mm-hmm. people would die from you know bathtub hooch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's the same sort of. It's I mean, it's the exact same dynamic, right? It's people when, would drink ethanol, right? They drink yeah. ethanol, they'd go blind, they die. Uh, and these these deaths today, where you have people taking things like 25 IN bomb when they thought they were taking LSD, or you know, people getting pills that are nothing but methamphetamine when they thought they were taking MDMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these deaths are the exact equivalent of people who died in the 1930s after drinking you know bathtub hooch it's and then you've and then you've got designer drugs you've got these independent yeah. laboratories and warehouses and basements that are manufacturing god knows what half the time they can't even tell you exactly what the composition does and then that ends up in the in, stepped on in the drugs that are on the streets right and, um yeah i mean that's that's sort of the dynamic that's at play is that uh when a molecule gets banned uh, all you have to really do is knock off a hydrogen and add a ch3 right now you have a brand new molecule and the nature of free societies is that anything that isn't uh, explicitly illegal is legal. That's the nature of a free society. It's this, the world we live in. If something mm-hmm. isn't you know, explicitly made illegal by the legislature, then it is legal. Mm-hmm. And so by chemically changing these molecules, you know, by tweaking these things with just a, an, an oxygen here or a nitrogen there or a CH3 here – uh, you've created a new molecule that isn't illegal, at least for now, right? It's always mm-hmm. the game of catch up. Yep. And if it's if it's close to an illegal drug, the odds are it'll do something. Uh, and often the way that people find out if it does something is by moving it onto market. You know, they'll get these things made. Uh, you know, there's labs in China that will do custom synthesis. You know, you can just send them a drawing of a molecule, and they'll they'll synthesize whatever it is you drew. I think Vice just did a, re- a piece yeah. recently about the the laboratories in China that will do basically for higher drug manufacturing right. just about anything right and they're and it's not you know these aren't illegal drugs they're they're legal drugs and often they're far more dangerous than mm-hmm. the illegal drugs that they're replacing uh, not always just because something's a designer drug doesn't automatically mean that it's going to be worse than the illegal drug that it's replacing There's, sure but then you have things like bath salts and synthetic marijuana yeah. and yeah, I mean, some of them are extremely dangerous. Uh, the the whole N-bomb family is a family of drugs that's been sort of creeping into uh, the LSD market. It, they fit on, most of them fit on blotter. They make you hallucinate, and so often people will sell this. Members of this family, particularly one called Twenty Five I N-bomb, will get sold as acid quite often. And we're somewhere – it's hard to know, but we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 deaths in the last two years. And these are not people who are tripping so hard that they run out into traffic. These are people who are suffering from multiple systemic organ failure deaths after taking recreational doses of what they thought was LSD, which Mm -hmm. is a drug that has zero confirmed deaths. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so to have these really dangerous substances being misrepresented – uh, is is sort of what what we try to you know what we're mainly trying to deal with. It's I often joke that what Dansafe does is you know somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty percent trying to mitigate the risks of the drugs, and somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty percent trying to mitigate the risks of drug prohibition. Yeah, um, and so it's there's this idea that drug prohibition is drug control and it's actually the exact opposite when you prohibit a substance you're not controlling it you're giving up all of the control of that substance to the black market and so by outlawing all of these substances they've the the government has given up all of that control to the black market 
And I don't think that there's anything that necessarily means that a, a drug dealer is automatically an unscrupulous person. I think there are people who are drug dealers who are, are perfectly moral people. Sure. Uh, but because there's no control over these markets, it really only takes a small number of, of bad actors to uh, really, really, really flood the market with uh, very dangerous misrepresented substances. And I think that leads into the next question pretty well. Do you think that the common criticism that Dance Safe encourages drug use holds any water? Uh, you know, I, I really don't. And part of the reason that I don't is that when we're at an event, we're inside security. We're in the venue. And when we're at an event where we're offering drug checking services and we do tests and a substance tests as something other than what the person thought it was – they almost always tell us that they're not going to consume that substance. Right? Yeah. We don't keep a trash can in the booth because then we'd have a trash can full of drugs. In, in all they, likelihood, <laughs> you're reducing drug usage. Right. I, I do. I do think that's actually what's at play because when we're not doing drug checking, it's not like if a, per, a person is inside security, it's 1030 on a Friday night, the party is happening. And if a person comes to the booth and we've been asked not to provide drug checking services and we're always happy to be on site at an event, even if we're not doing drug testing. Mm. Um, but it, yeah, you know, it's 10:30 on a Friday night. They show up at the booth. They have a bag of, of powder, and they want to test it. And if we can't do that, it's it's almost certain that that person is going to consume that that substance. Mm-hmm. They're inside security with their drugs at the party. They're they're probably going to eat those drugs. Yeah. Uh, whereas when we're doing drug checking, it's just you know, person after person after person we're testing for. It's not what they thought it was. We ask them if they're planning on consuming it, and they almost always say no. We like to to track that. That, that number of people who say they're not planning on consuming a substance. So do you leave it up to the people who come to your stations to dispose of the drugs? Right. Yeah. Okay. We, we never touch the sample even when we're doing the drug test. Because that could, that could implicate right. you guys. Right. Yeah. Right. So to avoid the issue of drug possession, um, even though a lot of these things are technically legal, we're not looking to deal with that problem. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we don't even keep a trash can in the booth because then we'd have a trash can full of drugs at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, we have on occasion had law enforcement who was on slightly better terms. You know, sometimes they'll have drug amnesty bins at an event, you know, where before security they can throw something out. Mm-hmm. We'll often ask if they have those that they put one inside security as well. That way these things don't end up in the trash because mm-hmm. somebody might find them. Somebody might take them. There's, they probably shouldn't be going into an incinerator. There's a lot of, there's a lot of issues there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just amazing when you're doing drug checking how often people tell you even when it's a substance that maybe isn't substantially more dangerous than the substance they thought they were getting Mm -hmm. uh you know so there's a there's a drug called methylone that is often sold as mdma uh it's not mdma but it's in the same sort of general family uh it's it's not really known to be any more neurotoxic. It's not really known if you, as long as you still do all the sort of safety precaution stuff you have to do with MDMA, you Mm. you drink enough water, you take time to cool down. We haven't really seen deaths from, from this substance on a scale, any different than we see deaths from MDMA, which Mm. we do see all, you know, almost always in hot environments. It's generally, there's generally uh, environmental conditions that lead to these Mm. MDMA heat stroke deaths. Um, but even when we tell people all of that, that, hey, this is a drug that's been around for a while, that people haven't really been dying from any more than they would necessarily die from MDMA statistically, uh, they're still often like, well, look, I'm just I'm, – I'm looking for MDMA. Like I'm not looking to take anything other than that. Uh, and when you have something like 25 IN bomb where you tell them, look, people have died from taking one, 
I don't think I've ever done a test where it was 25 IN bomb instead of LSD and the person told me that they were planning on consuming it. I mean, it's just universally. They have people who are, people who are looking for LSD have no interest in taking a drug that's been killing people by shutting their hearts down. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense because most drug users aren't drug addicts. Most drug users are recreational drug users. Uh, even of the drugs that we think of as very addictive, very dangerous, most people don't meet the diagnostic criteria for addiction. They're, they're what we would call recreational users. Mm-hmm. And certainly with things like MDMA and LSE, what you know, the things that we're sort of generally dealing with in the in the EDM community, the vast, vast, vast majority of these users do not meet any of the sort of medical criteria that you would use for addiction. They are just people who have their lives together, have perfectly mm-hmm. normal lives, and occasionally consume drugs. Yeah. And so certainly these people are not they're not looking to hurt themselves. They're not looking to to even risk that. Uh, they've just looked at the the risks of these substances and they've looked at what their friends say about them and they've looked online a lot of times and I mean it's amazing how much research people do now that we have the now that we have the internet you know oh, how much yeah. independent research people do about the drugs they're planning on consuming I think the best website for that kind of research is probably Arrowhead yeah Arrowhead's amazing or as we were talking about before you can go to maps yep which is uh, yes maps.org multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies and they actually conduct peer funded and peer-reviewed scientific studies on possible benefits and consequences of using certain psychoactive substances. Yeah, yeah, those are both great resources. Uh, the, you know, the DanceSafe website at dancesafe.org also has a lot of drug information. We're in the process of, of updating and rebuilding that site right now, so it's going to be a, a, a lot different looking soon, but the information will be, still be there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's most people who are using these substances – are, are not looking to have a bad time, right? And of course you, not, yeah. Yeah, and so by providing these services, we sort of help mitigate the, the risks of these behaviors. And, you know, the, the reality is the only way to be 100% safe about drug use is to abstain from drug use. That's the, mm-hmm. only, the only really safe drug use is no drug use. But we live in a world where millions and millions and millions of people every month choose to engage in using these substances anyway. Uh, they know that there are risks to this. They mm-hmm. know that there are potentially fatal risks sometimes and millions of people still choose to do these things and so this the sort of idea is that you try to mitigate the risks of those people who have already decided that they're going to be consuming these substances yeah and, and like you said it's millions of people it's people of all social classes yeah. it could be your coworker in your office it's not yeah. just impoverished people or certain demographics or anything like that it's no. a, it's a, it's a wide array of different types of people that choose to um, engage in recreational drug use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, drug use is something that really does not discriminate in any way. People of every race, every religion, every nationality, every socioeconomic class uh, all use drugs. Mm-hmm. People of all of those categories sometimes develop uh, the sort of behaviors that we would generally classify as addiction. Uh, people of all of those groups occasionally use drugs that are very dangerous and die from it. I mm-hmm. mean, there is there is no discrimination when it comes to molecules. They're just molecules, right? It's uh, It just is what it is. And humans, as a general rule, seem to really enjoy drugs. Hum- uh, you know, some people will really do almost anything they need to do to find these things. <laughs> and so, yeah, the idea that, that uh, DanceSafe's uh, services are somehow encouraging drug use is one that I've always found – 
not really humorous, but 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 kind of humorous because mm. uh, as as a friend of mine once quipped, there's a reason that MDMA is called ecstasy and not mild amusement. <laughs> right? You don't you don't you don't need uh, you don't need billboards for MDMA. You don't need web advertisement for MDMA. It sells itself. It sells itself. People people are looking for it. They're you know people sometimes get really evangelical about it after they try MDMA for the first time. You know they want to the first thing they want to do is go tell their parents. You're like no, mm. this is get sober. I wouldn't do that. Get, if so, I were get you. sober before you make any decisions about telling your parents about how amazing this thing these things are like and and to go off of what you were saying about dance safe as being perceived as pro drug use to just to speak to both i mean i'm preaching to the choir talking to you but to speak to our listeners anyone potentially listening you don't have to be an advocate for drug use or morally agree with drug use to understand that the war on drugs and the criminalization of these substances is counteractive and it makes the problems worse. And I recently had a conversation with somebody actually about uh, prostitution as well. You know, you don't you don't have to want to go buy a hooker to understand that sex trafficking and abuse are statistically increased by keeping that sort of thing illegal. Right. And, and it just see, makes the circumstances worse. Right. And you I, yeah, you do. You see the same thing with with the war on drugs where you know, people you know, generally we're dealing with with club drug markets, right? We're dealing with people who are using things like MDMA, LSD, cocaine. Um, but when the drug amnesty bins are put outside security, we do still see opiates put into those bins. Um, oh, yeah. They have those those baskets at the beginning right. where you can throw your drugs away and there's no legal consequences right. versus if you take them into the party, there's the potential of you being searched or narked on or arrested right. or whatever else. Right. And in those bins, we, we do often see when they – a lot of times, actually, the people who run those bins will use dance safe drug kits. Um, so they'll they'll do the they'll do drug analysis of what's being left off at their at their you know in their amnesty bins. And uh, we do we see opiates. So there are opiates within the community. I don't think people are using them. You know, like I said earlier, I don't think it's Friday ten thirty. I think maybe it's you know Saturday morning at four a.m. after they've been partying all night. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're using a little bit of opiates to you know as a, a crash pad to you know land you know mm-hmm. land for the evening. Um. And so a lot of times when I'm having conversations, you know, not wearing my dance safe hat, when I'm just sort of ranting about drug policy, which is one of the things I really enjoy doing at parties, <laughs> um, you know, people often, they're totally on board with, oh, yeah, we should legalize LSD, we should legalize psilocybin, we should legalize MDMA. Then you get to heroin and suddenly even the party kids don't want to hear that, have that conversation, you know, it's like suddenly they don't want to talk about legalization anymore. Uh, uh, a buddy of mine uh, coined the term uh, pharmaca chauvinism. You know, it's this idea that like, oh, my drugs are fine, right? My, the drugs I like should all be legal. But those, those other drugs, those other drugs that other people like, those we need to keep illegal. But again, even with opiates, which are you know, drugs that are just demonstrably dangerous as molecules. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are, they can stop your heart. They can stop your breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, these are, these are molecules that are at least potentially very, very dangerous. Even with those, most of the things we see that kill people are the direct result of opiate prohibition. You know, you see things like bags of unknown strength. Yeah. That doesn't happen under a system of legalization and regulation. You know, you see research chemical opiates cut into heroin to make it stronger, like fentanyl and carfentanil and acetyl fentanyl. Fentanyl is crazy. Yeah. And now we have, now we have analogs that are orders of magnitude more powerful than fentanyl. You know, uh, so now we have things that, you know, a single gram is 10,000 doses. 
So there's stuff out there right now that's actually more powerful than Fenton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like uh, orders of magnitude more powerful. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. As, as, as much more powerful than fentanyl as fentanyl is from opium. Right. So much more powerful. Um, you know, so those, those deaths, when someone gets a bag and it has fentanyl in it and it's unevenly mixed and they, they overdose and, and they die, that is not just an opiate death. That's an opiate prohibition death. If that person had access to legal regulated uh, opiates, uh, whether that was heroin or oxycodone or however we wanted to structure that as a society, mm-hmm. uh, if you know how strong something is, if you're not afraid to call 911 because you're not going to get in trouble for having these substances, or if you go even further like some places in Europe have done now where they actually have shooting galleries where a person can come in, get their opiates from their doctor and shoot them in front of a nurse mm-hmm. – uh, then you really have very low risk of, of potential death. Mm-hmm. When you have a bag of known strength produced by a pharmaceutical company that's being used in front of a medical professional, that is that is a million miles away in terms of risk from a person buying a bag on a street corner, going into an abandoned house and shooting it up alone. Well, and then there's the matter of sterility. Yeah. People sharing needles. Yeah, I mean, anybody that they sleep with, if they have HIV, they're transferring it to that person, yeah. and then that person could unknowingly, unwittingly transfer it to another person. Yeah, and you could have an outbreak of diseases that don't just affect drug addicts. Right, right. And these are, uh, you know, the needle exchanges do great work. I mean, there's there's one in Denver. Uh, you know, it's the Harm Reduction Action Center. They they give out. I, I don't know, a lot, a lot, a lot of... Oh, there's uh, one here in Denver. There is, that. yeah. There's a needle exchange in Denver. The Harm Reduction Action Center. Yep. Yep. And they, uh, you know, they've got a they got a Facebook page. They're very active. They're always looking for volunteers. Um, and yeah, there's there's needle exchanges all over now, but it's, it's... We still have areas where people can be arrested for carrying needles. Mm-hmm. You know, they are their drug paraphernalia. Uh, and so people are worried about the idea of, you know, oh, setting up these needle exchanges and people used to get arrested for running these. That doesn't – thankfully, that doesn't seem to happen too much anymore. But people have been arrested for giving clean needles to heroin addicts, which is just the most insane thing you could ever think of in terms of a policy if yeah. you wanted to reduce the risks of of spreading diseases or drug use. Um, but it, it is. It's, these are all parallel arguments, right? It's the same argument that we get that, oh, if you're providing drug checking services, you're encouraging drug use. You know, oh, if you're giving these people clean needles. But like you said, people use drugs either way. Uh, and so the whole idea behind harm reduction is this idea that you have to meet people where they are, right? You can't mm-hmm. go to somebody who's a recreational MDMA user or – you know, somebody who's uh, sexually active or somebody who's using opiates and just say, oh, you should just stop stop this behavior. Mm-hmm. We've had going on 50 years of just say no as governmental policy. Uh, you know, we have hundreds of billions of dollars or trillions mm-hmm. of dollars. As, as of 2012, the federal total federal spending on the war on drugs since Nixon kicked it off in 1971 was over $1 trillion. Right. So we're, yeah, so we're over a trillion dollars. We're hemorrhaging money fighting this quote war unquote. Yeah. And, and it's, and like you said, the, the rates of drug use since we've spent this trillion dollars have gone up and incarceration rates have gone up and our correctional facilities do anything but correct. They usually just manufacture even better criminals. Yeah. Yeah, one of, one of the arguments that I often use, uh, particularly with law enforcement, when they when because a lot of times law enforcement's argument is, oh well, security should just be better at festivals. We should mm-hmm. have more security at festivals, and that will stop drug use. And the reality is, if you talk to anyone who's ever been in prison, 
the first thing they'll tell you is that it's just as easy or easier to get drugs in jail. Oh, yeah. Right. And so that's as far as you can take a security apparatus, right? You can't take it any further than federal prison. That's as far as security goes. These people don't have Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, you can do strip searches on visitors. You're not allowed to touch a visitor. It has a permanent wall around it as opposed to a temporary event where often – uh, you know, you hear rumors about people maybe bringing their drugs in before an event even sets up infrastructure and burying them on the property. I mean, mm-hmm. I've heard that from a lot of people that that's how, you know, sort of larger dealers will operate at these events. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. And so if a federal prison can't get their drug use rates lower, uh, the idea that a festival promoter could somehow increase their security apparatus to impact drug use at their event. To completely prevent it, which which is just a fantasy. Right, it's, it's a fantasy. It's, it's insane. I mean, it's, and we live in a country that has quite strong Fourth Amendment rights. Mm. Um, you know, at, at, when you're at a festival security checkpoint and they start going through your pockets and they open your backpack, you can stand there until they're about to open the tiny little black velvet baggie that has your drugs in it. And the moment they're about to find your drugs, you can say... I don't want to come in anymore. I no longer consent to this search. You can take your bag and walk away. That doesn't mean they're going to respect it, right? Maybe, sure. they'll keep, maybe they'll keep looking and find it anyway. But as long as you say that those drugs are inadmissible in court, these people don't – you have a Fourth Amendment right even at the point where they've already gone through 98% of your stuff and they're about to open the, the magic baggie. You still at that moment in time have a Fourth Amendment right to say no mm-hmm. and that's the end of it. And so the idea that you could somehow increase security and keep drugs out of an event to me is really just insane. I mean, it's it's a ludicrous idea. That kind of encompasses the war on drugs itself when right. you think about it that way. Right. We've hammered all this all this security in, and we've increased all this funding, and we've said, you know, do these raids and do that raid, and it hasn't done anything. We've still seen the numbers continuously rise. Yeah. Yeah, I had a a long, long time ago, I had a, a DEA agent, this was before I was involved with DanceSafe, he was actually somebody that I met socially, uh, tell me that the DEA's own estimates on the number of drugs that they stopped was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15%. So we spent a trillion dollars, we've locked up hundreds of thousands of people. We've ruined lives with drug convictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now these people are convicted felons. You can legally discriminate against convicted felons. I mean, it really ruins a person's entire life to be convicted of a, a drug felony. And by their own estimates, they're stopping at most 10 or 15% of these <laughs> substances. And so at some point, I think we really need to have a conversation as a, as a society about return on investment. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know, at what point do we just admit that like, we're just not getting our money's worth out of the war on drugs, uh, that we need to start accepting that drug use is going to happen, that we need to provide harm reduction services to people mm-hmm. who are going to use drugs. And I view it very much along the lines of the, the people who argue that we shouldn't give out condoms. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that, oh, if we give out condoms in, in high schools, it's just going to encourage high school kids to have sex. And it's like high school kids don't need encouragement to yeah. have sex. That's, yeah. not the, that's not the dynamic at play here. I, I think people go to extremes – with with their moral biases, they think to themselves, oh, everybody who wants drugs legalized wants you to be able to go down to 7-Eleven and buy ecstasy. Right. And that's not the case. We just don't think that an entire life should be ruined for possessing something. And, you know, oftentimes because of – if you're not familiar, if you're listening and you're not familiar with mandatory minimum sentencing, it's been around for decades and it pretty much just ensures that judges can only give a minimum sentence for certain offenders. So someone might be caught with possession who has never 
before possessed that drug in their life somebody who could be a college student someone who could have a bright future ahead of them and their entire life is ruined because the judge has no choice but to give them a minimum harsh sentence that's been established by mandatory minimums and if you'd like to learn more about that i would highly recommend looking up john oliver's recent segment about mandatory minimums because he goes into that pretty in depth and if you don't know how how bad our prison system is there's a lot of information out there for that as well um there's actually a reality television show called 60 days in where you can watch people go undercover in prisons and it's pretty insane the way that that people figure out how to survive and how to obtain drugs and and the violence and and the lack of supervision that's allowed and it's just the whole thing needs to be reformed unfortunately yeah it's uh it's it's a big fight um i'm I'm often very glad that DanceSafe has a small piece of the pie to, to mm-hmm. focus on, right? It's we have we're dealing with a certain drug using population. We have uh, a certain set of tools that we can provide to that population, and it's rare that there's a big problem that there's actually a simple solution to. Mm-hmm. But with with particularly the deaths that happen with club drugs, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not a huge fan of that term, but it's such a commonly understood term. But you know, when you look at MDMA deaths, they do happen. Um, Mainly overheating, right? Mainly overheating. Yeah, these are mainly uh, MDMA-potentiated heat stroke deaths. So these are people – all of that family of drugs uh, that MDMA is in, this this – that family, they all impact the a person's ability to thermoregulate. Mm-hmm. So they impact your body's ability to um, manage its own temperature. A shitload of prescription drugs do too. A shitload actually. of prescription drugs do too. There's a lot of prescription <laughs> drugs out there that do the same thing, right? It's so it's a it's a well understood biochemical phenomenon. It's mm-hmm. we, we know what's happening. Um, you know, often because festival season is in the summer. Uh, we often see events where the temperature breaks 100 degrees during the day. Uh, some events where the temperature stays that hot, even in the even at night. I don't want to call it any events by name, but mm-hmm. there's lots of events that are in the desert in July. They get really, really hot all day, all night. Uh, I think I know what you're referring right, to. Right, right. And so <laughs> there's there's uh, there's real there's real risks with taking with taking MDMA in a, in an environment like that. Um, we often have event promoters who don't necessarily prioritize having enough free water on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that often where you know, they'll say, look, I'm, I'm providing free water, but I'm also running a business. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to you – know, it, it costs money to run water lines to set up a water station. It's you – know, you're, you're cutting down on water bottle sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, we've seen – I think over the last – seven or eight years, we've seen uh, pretty much every promoter has now come to the conclusion that not providing free water is just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really have events anymore. In the early 2000s, there were events that would intentionally shut off water spigots in bathrooms. So I mean, that they could so charge they could for water. water. Right. So they could sell water bottles for $8 a piece. Um, really egregious behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some somewhat somewhat high-profile lawsuits and threats of lawsuits, which is often all it takes, right, is you don't even need to actually sue someone. But if they realize, hey, this person died at this event, like, yes, they consumed a drug, but they also didn't have free water at this mm-hmm. event. Uh, a lot of the promoters realize that even just from a purely purely financial self-interest, uh, that it does make sense to provide free water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thankfully, we don't see that as much anymore. I'm, I'm not aware of any large events actually anymore that don't provide some free water. That's great. Yeah. And some of them really go above and beyond. I mean, they're huge mm-hmm. hydration stations and they spend lots of money providing <laughs> really easy to access free water. Um, they'll even man, you know, they'll put manned staff at these mm-hmm. water stations to refill water bottles really quickly because when you have 
thousands of people, some of whom might not be entirely sober. The water refilling process can sometimes <laughs> uh, be a little uh, hamstrung by the lack of sobriety. And so having a sober staff person to really quickly <laughs> refill these bottles is often a, a, a thing that some of these promoters have realized cuts down on the refill times. Um, but yeah, it's it's with these club drugs, these deaths tend to be uh, environmental or misrepresentation. That mm. sort of sums up. You know, we don't have hard numbers on this, but my suspicion is that really sums up maybe ninety percent of the the drug related incidents that happen at events. Oh yeah, especially with MDMA and the overheating yep. in in crowded venues where it's so hot that the walls and ceiling are sweating right. and dripping on people, and then you're on a dance floor dancing your heart out. It it's it's it happens unfortunately. It does it does, and it's it's one of the the really dangerous things that tends to happen around those deaths is that the media tends to report these as MDMA overdose deaths. Mm. So they'll often, you'll see major headlines, MDMA overdose death at this venue. Oh yeah. They, they, they used to preach egregious information all the time. I remember in middle school when they were trying to, when, when dare was coming through the school and teaching people things and they were teaching people that, MDMA actually erodes the brain, which yeah. turned out not to be true at all. Right. Not just not true, but a, a, a fabricated study. This mm-hmm. was a study that had been done where uh, between the pre and post scan, they adjusted the scan resolution, right? And the sort of foundation <laughs> of the scientific method is you only change one thing at a time. So they basically photoshopped the x-rays. They basically photo- <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the CAT scans, right. But yeah, they basically, they basically photoshopped them. They, they intentionally manipulated the data in a way that would make it look like MDMA was much more dangerous. Mm. It's, it's a weird dynamic because one of the things that sort of makes it difficult for DanceSafe to operate is not that club drugs are so dangerous. It's actually that there are so few incidents, Mm -hmm. which is great, right? I mean, it's wonderful that there's so few medical incidents. You know, we have, you know, dozens of opiate deaths. Oh yeah. I think, I think think last year there was something in the, in the range of two deaths at festivals when, when every year there's, Six thousand or ten to sixteen thousand. I can't remember the exact number, but it's tens of thousands of deaths from NSAIDs that you can buy at at Walgreens, right. like right. Advil and Tylenol, right. and and of course alcohol, which people die from all the time. Right. There was a viral video just recently posted on Facebook of somebody who slammed a whole bottle of tequila and dropped dead right there. Oh, dropped dead and it was not, it was a drinking game oh. with a bunch of people and they were all cheering him on and he chugs this bottle of patron or whatever and he dies like five minutes wow. later wow yeah yeah it's a it's it's a weird dynamic it's but even the those those deaths that do occur uh oh and and, and it's worth noting everybody in his life said he was the healthiest guy too yeah in good wow. shape wow young dead Shut down his organs for yeah, tequila. Uh, alcohol's a alcohol's a real drug. It's mm-hmm. a, a real powerful drug. Um, but even even with what we have now, where people are do die from alcohol, again, it's right. It's this idea that mm-hmm. through legalization and regulation, we can actually help mitigate some of those risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, there's there was a st- survey that was done recently where you know high school kids were asked if it was easier to get alcohol or illegal drugs, and I think it was like three to one. They said it was easier to get drugs than it was to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a general rule, right, uh, there are a lot of drug dealers out there who are not going to card. They're not going to ask how old someone <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, whereas with the sort of source supply of alcohol, uh, they have to, right? There's mm-hmm. regulation around this system. They lose their business license if they don't. 
And so we've we've been able to actually reduce the uh, rates that w- at which teenagers can get alcohol through legalization and regulation. Which reminds me, obviously there's cigarettes which are legal and you have to be at least 18 to purchase those. But according to the National Institute on Drug Policy, cigarette addiction to nicotine has been steadily on the decline. Yeah. And it's also, according to them, considered one of the most addictive substances there is. And yet it's legal and we've seen the usage decreasing. Yeah, there's there's very little correlation between the actual risks of a drug and how our society treats that drug. Yep. That's this is probably a good time to bring up some other statistics too. Portugal legalized drugs in 2001, and since then, continuation rates of drug use among adults 15 to 64 are down from 44 percent to 32 percent. Lifetime past year and past month drug prevalence rates through 15 to 24 are way down. Drug-induced deaths went from nearly 80% of drug users in Portugal in 2001 down to 15% in 2012. HIV rates are probably the most staggering. They went from about 1,000 cases in 2001 to less than 150 in 2012. And Portugal is now one of the lowest drug deaths per capita places in the world. I mean, you can't argue with this. It's clear as day that the legislation has nothing to do with whether or not people are going to use. And if anything, it's to the contrary. When it's legal and people are able to be responsible, I mean, there's there's the matter of incentive and the stigma and people are like, well, why would I do that? Even if I can, it's still going to fuck me up or whatever, you know? Yeah. There's, there's no correlation. It's In fact, it's the opposite. Yeah, the, the argument that legalizing drugs will somehow... You, you often hear it with heroin, right? Oh, you want to you legalize heroin? Everyone would do heroin. It's such yeah, a weird right. argument to me because I, you could lock me in a room with 10 million doses of heroin and a yeah. year from now there will be 10 million doses of heroin i'm in the club scene i could probably <laughs> find heroin in 10 minutes if i wanted right, to am right. i going to hell no <laughs> right and yeah it's uh people who want to find drugs right now can find them yeah uh you know there's no real impediment to to finding those things yeah uh, and so this idea that right that we're gonna somehow we're gonna somehow uh have a flood of new heroin users if we legalize again even even these really dangerous drugs like heroin is such a bizarre argument to me and like we said with with ecstasy in particular uh it's people who want to find these substances can mm-hmm. find them and that's just the reality. You know, now we have the dark web where yep. you don't even really need to know anyone anymore. You just need to be able to sort of read through a PDF on how to use the dark web. And, yeah. and mo- you know, most people, if they're capable of setting up a, a website, you know, like a basic website, that's sort oh, yeah. of the level of technology. That you can you download need. dark web browsers on your phone. Oh, I, yeah, I didn't know it's there. Crazy. I didn't. I didn't know there were phone uh, phone onion browsers, but I guess I there should. are. I'd, I'd list them, but I don't want to encourage. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's not. Yeah, let's not encourage any any, uh, any dark web surfing. But <laughs> but right, it's it's there's basically you know websites now that are eBay for drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, people rank sellers. They rank. They use things. Bitcoin. It's anonymous. Anonymous. The value of services. Bitcoin is going up. Yeah, it's. Uh, at this point, if you want to, if, if a person is interested in finding drugs, at this point, I. It's just not that difficult for that person to do that. Yeah. You, the statistics with Portugal are glaring. The statistics with the Netherlands are similar. And meanwhile, 
Here in the United States, according to the United Nations Office on Drug on, uh, Drugs and Crime, United States ranks number one for pers- pers- prescription drug abuse, number one for opioid abuse, number two for pers- prescription stimulant abuse, number three for cocaine use, number two for cannabis use, which I don't think is in, even in the same realm as those drugs because there's, I mean, when we could get into, I already, I already did a whole show on that, so you can listen to that one if you want to. And we're number five for amphetamine abuse. So is is our strict anti-drug policy working? I would say that it's not, and I'd say that the facts support that. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, 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 I have a hard time imagining that even being a controversial statement. I mean, it's it's just demonstrably not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for years and years the the DEA would release this report that had numbers of uh, the lifetime numbers of people in America who had ever used an illegal drug, and it was sort of steadily creeping up. Right, so you know, thirty three percent, thirty eight percent. Uh, and right when it got to like 47%, they just stopped releasing that number, <laughs> right? So they just – so as soon as we're about to pass so, – so it's very clear to me that we have now passed that number where we now live in a society where most people have tried an illegal drug. Most. 60% of the country, according to a Gallup poll, believes that marijuana should be legal. Right. And so – and like you said, it's even if you, even if you take marijuana out of the equation, it's, yeah. it's very clear that most people have at some point in their life used an illegal drug, mm-hmm. uh, which means that just by – just by the definition of the word, that just means that drug use is normal, right? Mm-hmm. When most people have done something, that's what that <laughs> word means. And so we really have to sort of start accepting the reality that people can get these things mm-hmm. if they want to get them. People can do these things if they want to do them. Yeah. And so we need to provide them with everything we can in order to be as safe as they can while they make these decisions, even if we disagree with those decisions personally. Exactly. And I, and I think people kind of teeter this moral line where they're like, well, I'm anti-drug, so therefore I'm going to go on Facebook and say I don't give a shit if these heroin addicts die. And it's the most extreme, heartless, just sinister thing that somebody could say or think when it's six degrees of separation. It's it's somebody who has family members. It's somebody who has children, siblings, yeah. uncles, aunts, people that will miss them, successful people and non-successful people, people in high positions of authority and power and recognition and people who aren't. Yeah. It's a wide demographic. Yeah, I and mean, we hear that with drug checking as well sometimes too, that people say, oh, well, it's just Darwinism, right? Like if people take, take, uh, take drugs, then they're just playing Russian roulette with their lives. And that's just not the situation, right? It's, it's, we actually, we have technology, we have tools that can be provided that at least in some ways can help to mitigate the risks of these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I really view it as a moral imperative that we do everything we can to have everyone who's making any decision that might be dangerous. People can make their own decisions about behaving in dangerous ways. Mm-hmm. But as a society, we need to provide the tools that if they want to be safer in those decisions, they can be. We don't say, oh, we isn't, should outlaw. Isn't that the definition of responsibility? Right? That, that's, that's what being responsible <laughs> means, right? We don't say, oh, we need to ban seatbelts because they encourage speeding. <laughs> you know, We don't say, oh, we should ban flotation devices because it encourages people to swim and then they can drown. I mean, right, it, it, right you laugh because, that's, because it's a, an absurd argument. But I, I see that as a perfect parallel argument for drug checking services. I mm. really do. It's the idea that you would somehow uh, block access to these services because it might encourage the behavior that you're actually trying to mitigate the risk of, mm-hmm. uh, to me, just misses the point of the the service, right? It's, it misses the point of what we're doing. Uh, what we are doing is not – I'm not trying to encourage or discourage drug use. And, and I say that for all drugs. I, I have lost good friends to opiate addiction. 
I am not a fan of that family of drugs. Uh-huh. I am also no one's father. You know, if somebody wants to make decisions, I am willing to let them make those decisions and I will do everything I can to make sure that those people are as safe as they can be in that decision-making process. And with, with things like MDMA and LSD and psilocybin and the drugs that are sort of commonly used in the, in the EDM community, the, the molecules themselves have risk. There are inherent risks to any drug use. Mm-hmm. But statistically, the risks of those drugs are, are much lower than hundreds of legal things that we let oh, people yeah. do. Like I was saying, NSAIDs, prescription drugs where you listen to the commercial and you're like, why would I take that? Yeah. The side effects are worse than what it's treating. Or horseback riding or cheerleading or ice skating yeah, or you, skydiving. You I mean, there's, there's I know, all I know sorts there's, of dangerous things that we let people do. There's a lot of doctors and nurses who have to see people come into the hospital withdrawing from drugs or overdosing on drugs. And so they have a very strong stance on it. But you wouldn't make the argument hospitals shouldn't be treating people overdosing on drugs. Like, why, why should we have hospitals if people are putting them in? themselves in the position to die like there's no logic oh, i have these. actually seen that argument though oh. so, <laughs> um, I, hate to, I hate to break it to you but i have actually seen that argument that providing medical services to to uh, drug users somehow encourages drug use i, I have really seen that sad. one um, really really sad yeah it's it, it just sort of is of what it is people are uh people have this idea that anyone who takes any drug uh, should sort of be left to their own devices, and mm-hmm. that's the end of it, right? It's you're playing Russian roulette with your mind, and it's. Meanwhile, that person, you know, smokes a pack a day, uh, you know, cracks open a six pack every night, uh, maybe goes out heavy drinking on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly thinks nothing of, you know, taking the opiates that their doctor gives them. I was just about to say that. Yeah, it's you know, there's like that that meme that floats around that you know I don't do drugs starter pack, and it's got pictures of cigarettes, alcohol, <laughs> prescription drugs, <laughs> antibiotics. Uh, you know, mustard triggers dopamine reuptake inhibition. You know, mustard gets you high on on a biochemical <laughs> level. You know, there's all sorts of things we eat that that stimulate various parts of our neurochemistry mustard gets you high on a biochemical level yeah it's a it's it, yeah it's yeah there's there's an, there's an entire book I've, that's I want, crazy i want to say it's called intoxicants by Do- uh dr siegel maybe it's been a while since i've read it but he talks about all of these common things that we use that in terms of biochemical response we call them foods, but they behave like drugs. Things mm. like chocolate, things like sugar, yep. things like mustard. You know, we think of these as foods, but uh, realistically, chocolate has phenethylamine in it. It mm-hmm. actually it has a it has a thing that if you extracted it, purified it, and and put it in a capsule, we would undeniably call it a drug. I've actually been pushing so the the twenty five IN bomb, the drug the drug that has been killing people when it's misrepresented as LSD often gets called synthetic LSD in the media, and it mm-hmm. drives me crazy for two different reasons. One is that LSD is, is a synthetic drug, right? So calling it synthetic LSD as opposed, to that, as opposed to that all-natural organic LSD is just very, <laughs> very silly. Um, but the other reason it drives me crazy is that 25-IN bomb actually is chemically closer to the substances that are found in chocolate than it is to an indole like LSD. Wow. So I've been emailing reporters, you know, telling them that maybe they should start calling this synthetic chocolate instead. <laughs> it hasn't, it hasn't pick, been picked up yet, but I've been, I've been pushing that. I've been, I've been trying to get someone to someone, anyone in the media to call it synthetic chocolate <laughs> instead of synthetic LSD. Uh, but so far, so far unsuccessful in my quest to, uh, to get 25 IN bomb labeled synthetic chocolate. <laughs> but chemically it's true. I mean, chemically it's closer to the, the substances that are found in, found in chocolate than, than it is, is to LSD. They're very different drugs. They just both fit on blotter. That reminds me of that, that, that viral video with Jaden Smith. 
Yeah. Fifty percent of a banana's DNA is the same as a human's. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know when when you explain these things to people, they often want to go like fact check me, right? They're uh-huh. like, oh, it's impossible that that MDMA is actually you know biochemically not that dangerous. But now we have you know organizations like Maps, and there's mm-hmm. there's a, a tiny handful of others overseas, but it's real. It's really Maps that's been leading the the charge on this research where they've been doing uh, research on uh, uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for soldiers with treatment-resistant PTSD. So these are soldiers who have very, 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 I've very, very... I've got that very, in my notes. Yeah. I've got that study in my notes. Yeah, so, so this is really severe PTSD. And they have now done just mountains of clinical administrations of MDMA. So this is people getting MDMA that's produced legally by a pharmaceutical company in a clinical setting, right? They're not at a rave. They're in a cool room. There's a medical professional there. They're not dancing for eight Mm -hmm. hours. They're actually sitting there talking for eight hours. Mm -hmm. And out of all of these clinical administrations, they've had no deaths, They've had no adverse medical incidents. They've had no hospitalizations. And in their 2010 study that they did on veterans with MDMA, 83% saw their symptoms remissed. Right. They, yeah, they're, they're, they're not just treating it through regular drug use like most of our PTSD treatments. These people go through a handful. I think it's I think it's uh, maybe eight clinical sessions mm-hmm. of of. Uh, assisted psychotherapy. I think maybe yep. they give them MDMA on six of the eight or something. Controlled I don't the environment, controlled doses. Right. Um, but n- substantial doses. These mm-hmm. are people taking... Uh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's... it's it's. I think they start them with uh, maybe like 110 or 120 milligrams of MDMA. Wow. Pharmaceutically produced pure That's MDMA. Crazy. This is a substantial dose, right? This is, this is a, a real dose of MDMA. Um, and people just... So far in these studies, people just don't die from even substantial doses of MDMA. That's crazy. Which to me is a really clear data point. It's hard to extrapolate Mm -hmm. from medical research to recreational markets, right? These are very different worlds of use. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's one of the the sort of uh, dangers of this medical research, as much as I hate to call it that, is people read this research and they're like, wow, like people are taking these really high doses of MDMA, not really high, but they're taking substantial doses of MDMA. And they use that to justify taking it. And then they think, oh, well, if I take it, right, if I take it, I'll be fine. Well, and, and there's always there's always other factors, like they, they also had a few PTSD patients who relapsed into their symptoms, right? which is the same as any other prescription drug. There's always people who don't, yeah. who don't respond to it or are allergic to it or, you know, any number of things. Sure. And we do have a going, if you look at MDMA going back, uh, you know, sort of to the beginning of recreational use in the late seventies, early eighties, if you go all the way back and you look, there are a handful of deaths that we simply don't understand. Mm -hmm. There are people who took relatively small doses in cool environments Mm -hmm. who still ended up passing away. And it's, it's a, it's a small number. It's a handful but there are they're out there. There are people who have died from MDMA that were not MDMA potentiated heat stroke deaths. Sometimes people have undiagnosed heart conditions. Might have undiagnosed heart conditions. There may be actual allergies at play mm-hmm. because these because this drug is so different than anything that you would incur you know anything you would encounter in your life until you intentionally took MDMA. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't necessarily know if you didn't metabolize these things properly. There was a study on a particular liver enzyme mm-hmm. that might be at play there, but it was sort of very tentative research. And, yeah. 
But again, these are things that we could study uh, under a system of legalization and regulation. Mm-hmm. And if you give me uh, one-tenth of one percent of the drug war budget, <laughs> I will tell you why those five people died, right? I can, I can find yeah. that out if you'll give me one-tenth of one percent of the drug war budget for one year. Mm-hmm. I can do the research that would tell us why those people died. Uh, but they don't, they don't prioritize that research. They yeah. prioritize locking people up. Realistically, I mean, in my mind, uh, you know, drug reagent test kits are something that should be ultimately unnecessary because we would have a system of legal regulated markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But until we get to that point, it's really a service that should be provided by county health departments, Mm -hmm. right? County health departments should have not just reagent testing, but a GCMS lab. Actually, most of them already have the lab. They just use them for uh, law enforcement purposes, right? They use them to identify drugs that they're using in a trial. Mm -hmm. So we already have the infrastructure. We have a county health department in every county in this country. Every state, I think, must have at least one GCMS lab. Most most large cities have a GCMS lab. It's just all being used for prosecution it's just all being used for instead prosecution. of rehabilitation, right. which is right. the same issue with our correctional facilities. Right. Right. And so we have the infrastructure where, the, where counties could be providing drug checking services, right? You'd bring your drugs to the county health department. They would take a tiny sample out of these drugs or you would just bring them a tiny sample. They would number that sample. They would take it to the GCMS lab. They would run it through the lab and put the results on the internet. And then mm-hmm. you take your number. You, just like they do STD testing, right? It's the exact same uh, exact same way. They would just put that you, – you call in and type in a code and you get your results. And we have the infrastructure to do this. Uh, and with GCMS analysis, it's not just primary composition like the mm-hmm. Dansafe kits, which are certainly better than nothing, but also certainly not as good as a real analytical chemistry lab. Sure. Right. We're, we're doing – we're doing what we can with the technology that we have to mitigate these risks. We're not providing safe drug use. It's safer drug use. That's what we're aiming yeah. for. Well, I think it's fantastic with what you guys are doing. And we flew through that hour. Wow. <laughs> All right. So I got to take a quick moment to do a shout out for one of our sponsors. And then we're going to take a quick musical break. Have you ever thought about working with a life coach? Now's your chance to get a 30-minute crash course in self-exploration, helping you find your own answers and how to begin creating the life you would love to live. The show is Your Inner Connection, hosted by Denise Gale on Sundays at its new time, 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time here on KUHSDenver.com. And now we're going to take a musical break. I'm going to play a couple tracks of mine that I dug up from my extensive catalog. This first track is an indie dance track called Odal Dance Mama, the Joe Man Remix radio edit, and I'm going to follow that up with another aptly named track, Joe Man Cocaine and Sushi original mix on Velcro City Records. You can find both of those tracks. Enjoy. The Joe Man Show on KUHS. Hmm. 
back. You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. This is episode six. We're interviewing Mitchell Gomez with Dance Safe. We've been talking about what they do, the services that they provide and stuff like that. The last two tracks that you just heard were my remix of Odal's Dance Mama. So that's Odal Dance Mama Joe Man remix. And the one that followed that is the aptly named Joe Man Cocaine and Sushi original mix. You can find both of those on Velcro City Records. And considering the name of that track, it's probably important to note because we have a wide range of listeners on this radio station. You don't have to be a drug addict or even a recreational drug user to understand why services like this are important and why the legislation needs to be changed and why the, the war on drugs is counterproductive and counterintuitive because I, I'm not a drug addict. I, I don't do drugs. I am more or less sober. I drink. but And I smoke, so I guess I do kind of do drugs. But... Um, <laughs> You don't have to be an addict. You don't have to be shooting up heroin to understand why these things need to change. Um, so on that, I think we're going to go back to our Q&A here with Mitchell. we got a couple questions left. Um, let's start with this one. What are some of the risks that users of club drugs might not be aware of? And I know we've touched on this a little bit already, yeah. but we can go a little bit more in depth about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the biggest one is actually just getting the messaging out there that just because somebody sells you something and you know tells you hey this is you know x y or z somebody says this is a a bag of molly right that's the the one that we often mm. often hear people have this idea that molly is is really pure mdma 
Molly is a marketing term. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a word that someone told you to sell you a baggie of powder. That's yeah. that's all it means. Period. And because we live in a world that is, especially in the United States, we live in a country that is so highly regulated, right? We, we bubble wrap all of our sharp corners. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if coffee's too hot, you know, restaurants get shut down. I mean, everything <laughs> is so heavily regulated mm-hmm. that often new users who are coming into uh, the scene for the first time, they often don't even realize that that markets can be adulterated, mm-hmm. right? They don't even know that people sell one drug as another or just baggies of, you know, uh, baking powder <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as, uh, as a drug. And so that's a really important messaging that you, you always have to push and you always have to get out there is that just because someone told you something was pure, just because they said it came from family, just because they said that, you know, this, this, that, or the other doesn't mean anything. It means they were trying to sell you a baggie. There were a couple crackdowns on cocaine where they actually weren't even able to prosecute the sellers because there wasn't any cocaine in their cocaine. Right, right. So they actually, they, the, the law was changed. That was a, there was a couple of famous cases like that. Yeah. And they actually changed the law so that now, even if you sell sugar, if you represent it as cocaine, they can now charge you at, with that amount of weight okay of, so, but they had to change the law right yeah. because there were there were people who got arrested selling you know quote unquote kilos of coke that were <laughs> just cutting agents <laughs> uh and, and and this is a thing that transcends any individual molecule uh all black markets just by the oper- the way they operate they're all adulterated uh, mm-hmm. or misrepresented. Uh, adulteration is not actually the right word. It's, it's interesting, particularly with MDMA, uh, we don't actually see... We have a GCMS lab that we actually we fund in California. It's actually managed by Eroid. So it's at nice. ecstasydata.org. Uh, and you can... They have a, a Schedule One handling license. They can legally receive drugs in the mail. So you can mail them your drugs with a payment, and they will run it through the GCMS lab, and they'll put the results online on ecstasydata.org. And because we have that laboratory, we actually get a lot of data that reagent testing alone wouldn't give us. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've seen is that in the United States in particular, we don't actually see a lot of adulterated MDMA. Mm-hmm. We don't see MDMA with things that are cut into it on a, on a super often basis. Really? Yeah. I find that pretty surprising, actually. Yeah. It's interesting. It's not what you would sort of count intuitively think. Um, we do occasionally see MDMA that's cut with amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Uh Pure MDMA is actually not that stimulating of a drug naturally. Mm. So a lot of times when people take uh, MDMA for the first time after having taken uh, adulterated MDMA or other research chemicals for a long time, a lot of times they'll think they got sold something that was fake because they're mm. not that stimulated, right? It's it's a It releases serotonin. It doesn't do that much with your uh, dopamine or norepinephrine systems. It's not a, a classical stimulant. So if, if people take what they think is MDMA and they're cracked out of their minds. They probably took something. They probably took something else or something. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so we know that we know that from this GCMS lab, but what we do see on a, a shockingly regular basis is bags that were sold as MDMA that are actually substituted cathinone. So this is a big family of drugs. Uh, the sort of classical first generation ones were methylone, ethylone, and butylone. It was three drugs that were legal for a long time. Uh, they were sold as legal highs in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the UK. And in the United States, we have something called the Analog Act. So the Analog Act basically says that if you sell something that is substantially similar to an illegal drug and you sell it as a drug, it's as illegal as the illegal drug, right? That's what you were saying before, right? Right. Yeah. So if you, if you take methylone, which is structurally quite similar to MDMA, it's, it's BK-MDMA, it's beta-ketone MDMA. Mm-hmm. So you take methylone 
and if you took it and you sell it as as Molly, or if you even packaged it as a legal high, you could be prosecuted under the Analog Act for selling that substance. But as long as you call it anything other than a drug and you sell it to somebody, you're not liable for their misuse of that drug, which is actually mm. where the term bath salts came from, right? So you package the little gram baggies and you label them as bath salts. Well, now you're not liable if somebody decides to swallow or snort you your bath serious? salts. Right. That's why you can That's, go to the gas station and right. get synthetic marijuana. Right. And bath it's, salts. it's because the, it's because the synthetic marijuana is sold as incense, mm-hmm. right? It's incense. It's not synthetic marijuana. It's incense. And then they're not liable for you smoking it, which actually makes a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because realistically, a person who's selling, you know, air duster for legitimately cleaning a computer probably should not be held legally liable if somebody inhales their air duster, mm-hmm. right? So, so it does make sense. But this idea that somebody would be buying a $20 gram bag of bath salts, I mean, I think everyone recognizes what's <laughs> happening here, right? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, a legal workaround of the Analog Act. Very similar to the legal workaround for, uh, you know, these quote-unquote tobacco pipes, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, you have six-foot bongs labeled as tobacco pipe. I don't care if you're a pack-a-day smoker. If you do a six-foot bong rip of tobacco, you are going to projectile vomit, right? I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's just, the, uh, that's just a fact. I mean, nobody yeah. is doing six-foot bong rips of tobacco. No question about it. Right. And so – and everybody recognizes what this is, right? It's an attempt to avoid with – the, with the bongs, it's an attempt to – they can't even say the word bong, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a water pipe because you need to avoid paraphernalia charges. Well, how does that law interact with laws that require warning labels on products and – like false advertising claims and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it's you know people have been arrested even when selling these substances as whatever they're selling them as. Yeah, uh, pond cleaner was actually a fairly famous one for a while. There was a website called the Pond Man where he sold you know quote unquote pond cleaners. This was way back in the day. <laughs> wow. Uh, and he was actually shut down as part of something called Operation Web Trip, which was the first sort of large DEA operation that went after research chem vendors on the internet. This was in er- early two thousands. Mm. Uh, I, f- I forget the exact year. I want to say two thousand four, maybe. Uh, and a lot of these guys went to jail. Um, but the next generation of people who got into this learned from all of their mistakes, right? Mm. So some of these guys' messaging was a little, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. Some of them were hosting forums on their own websites where people could talk about these substances and mm. would like rate them. That got a lot of people, you know, if you're selling, you know, 2CI as pond cleaner on your website and then on a different part of your website, you have a forum where people are talking about snorting it and how much dosage they're taking, there, there's clearly a conflict there with yeah. the, that the law found quite easy to use to, to come after these people. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Uh, but as long as you're very careful about <clears throat> your messaging, as long as you make sure you don't have anything on your shelf that's actually illegal because that's happened as well. Mm-hmm. You know, laws will change and it, people don't necessarily pay super close attention to that, right? Once something has been scheduled, it doesn't matter what you call it. Yeah. Once it's illegal, it's illegal. It doesn't matter what you call it. And all of those classic cathinones are now uh, scheduled. They're all scheduled one. Did they schedule salvia? Do you know? Uh, so federally, salvia is not scheduled. Uh, I think about twenty nine states, mm. thirty five states, somewhere in that neighborhood, mm. have outlawed it, including Colorado. Really? Yeah. Oh, so you, you can buy, you can legally buy weed in Colorado, but you cannot buy salvia. <laughs> Which actually, if you look at the drugs from a sort of objective standpoint, I, I don't think any drug should be illegal. Mm. Uh, 
Salvia is a, a profoundly destabilizing experience for a mm. lot of people who try it. It really, really, really is a is a powerful psychedelic drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the fact that that one was so widely available for so long and being marketed as a marijuana alternative was mm-hmm. was quite dangerous. I mean that was that was uh, an interesting time period when there was all these YouTube videos of people you know oh I remember of them smoking salvia. Yeah, you search yeah. salvia on YouTube, you'll see people having. Right. I what mean, can be described as psychotically intense right. psychedelic experiences. Right. I mean, at, at, at certain doses, people who've taken salvia just don't know that they're a person on a drug anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. just not part of the process. And so, um, <laughs> but yeah, so what we, what we see is these, these drugs uh, that are often sold legal, you know, quasi legally mm-hmm. under this, uh, you know, these analog act avoidance labels, you know, bath salts, uh, pond cleaner, uh, room deodorizer, whatever they call them. Uh, and then you'll also see those same drugs misrepresented in recreational markets mm. as the drugs they're trying to replace. Yeah. And then what happens is the law plays catch up. Uh, they find the ones, often the ones that are popular, not necessarily the ones that are more dangerous, right? So it's the ones that get popular, get outlawed. And then people move on to the next analog because there are just thousands of molecular tweaks that you can mm-hmm. make to almost every common recreational drug. And mo- we don't know what most of those tweaks will do, but because they're so structurally similar to these drugs, most of them will probably do something. And because of that, they'll never be eliminated. There will always be another right. synthetic tweak. I, I, I heard someone whose opinion I really respected on the matter once say that by his estimation, just with the ones that we know are likely to be psychoactive at the current rate that we outlaw them, we already have a backlog of like 2,500 years worth of drugs. Wow. Like right now. And that's not, nobody's ever really looked at the salvia analogs. Nobody's ever really done a lot of work on, there's a lot of mescaline analogs that have been worked on, but there's a a whole class that have not. Uh, Now we have the N-bombs, some of which have proven to be very dangerous, but that doesn't mean that all of them will be, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them might, might not be. Some of them might not be. And because they're active at microgram ranges, where a gram of 25 IN bomb is thousands of doses, uh, the idea that you would ever be able to control these things Mm -hmm. Is, is just nuts, right? I mean, if you want to smuggle a thousand grams of cocaine, right? Now we're talking about a kilo. You're mm-hmm. talking about something that has weight. It has volume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's something that the police can look for. Yeah. A gram of 25 IN bomb is, is several thousand doses, right? You, you are just not ever going to stop people from smuggling a gram of powder across a border. Absolutely not. Impossible. You could put that in a prescription pill <laughs> bottle and they'd never know that it was there. Oh, I mean, forget that. How many shipping containers come into this country every day that filled, too. filled with product, right? That too. Yeah. Right? It's no, you, you don't even need to put it in your pocket. I was thinking on a way small <laughs> right, scale. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. It's, we're talking, you know, one gram of powder in one shipping container out of 50 shipping containers an hour that are coming through customs and they need to clear them or global commerce comes to a screeching halt oh let's just build a wall that'll fix it <laughs> yeah it, right it's i mean this, this this idea that you could stop them that way is just it's just impossible yeah and so what we do see is we see these drugs being misrepresented as, as mdma all the time mm-hmm. uh you know with cocaine you often have levamisol as a cutting agent uh that one the the test kit to manufacture that is extremely difficult and there's some question about about its efficacy but we know from laboratory analysis that basically you can assume if you're snorting cocaine like flip a coin you're 50 50 it probably has levamisole in it Mm. just because levamisole visually looks like cocaine Mm. that's the only reason why it Mm. looks like coke and so when they step on it it doesn't look stepped on uh 
and that one uh, with long-term heavy use crashes your immune system so thoroughly that it looks like late stage AJ, late stage HIV. Uh, I mean, it is a severe immuno immune wow. system compromisation from from that particular one. Uh, again, this is purely problems of prohibition, right? It's it's this is not mm-hmm. something that would happen in a world with uh, legalized recreational cocaine. I know that's not a phrase people are often used to hearing, <laughs> um, but uh, it is actually a solution to this problem. Uh, we've actually started recently to see uh, methamphetamine sold as cocaine, mm. uh, which is weird because. It doesn't seem like it should be – in terms of financial incentive, that seems like a strange one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what it is is it's generally along border states and I think there's just a lot of methamphetamine that mm-hmm. flows over and I think people have access to it. And so they just sell it as whatever you're asking for, right? Mm-hmm. It's whatever – you know, this guy wants the, a bag of cocaine. I'll sell him a bag of whatever. We'll keep him awake yeah. and call it cocaine and that's what's happening. Uh for years, the the LSD market was sort of uh, you know quote unquote the most reliably uh, reliable one. You know, either mm-hmm. something was LSD or it was just a blank piece of paper. Uh, that is just not the case anymore. Now we have several dozen drugs of basically every family of drugs that could theoretically fit on blotter. Mm-hmm. We have uh, research chemicals that are microgram active benzos, so you could make Xanax blotter. We have research chemicals that are microgram active opiates, so you could put what is functionally heroin on blotter. Um, <coughs> sorry about that. Um, and so, yeah, we do. We, we – the – it used to be that there was just so few molecules that an active dose would fit on this tiny piece of paper mm-hmm. that you could just sort of – there was the DO family, DOI and DOB both did, but they both have an extremely, extremely unpleasant taste. Mm. Uh, and so it just didn't happen that often, but that's just not the case anymore. And, like and I plus said, you, you think back to the 60s, if you, if you were to, to have taken a tab of acid back when LSD first was being proliferated in society – if it made you hallucinate and it made you euphoric, you knew that it was LSD. Right. Versus now, there are tons of synthetic yep. compounds that can mimic those right. those traits right. of and, hallucination and yeah. euphoria. And you might not realize that they're doing damage to your body that LSD yeah. by itself wouldn't do. Right. And yeah, and tw- I mean, 25-IN bomb in particular has proven to be a really sort of uh, problematic compound. It's It's... Like I said, we don't really know how many deaths, but we've certainly passed 35 or 40 at this point. Yeah. Um, and this is a substance that was only introduced into recreational markets three or four years ago. Uh, and even when people uh, – some people have taken it and, and enjoyed it and pe- had no problems. And then their friend has taken one off of the same 10 strip and died. So it does seem to really be a sort of individual metabolism issue that some people – are okay on this substance and Mm. some people aren't and there's just no way to know before somebody takes it whether or not uh that they're going to be one of the ones who potentially has a problem yeah and this is a this is a like i said it's rare that we have big problems with easy solutions but this one you know one drop of an ehrlich's reagent on a quarter of a tab and if it turns purple it's an indole uh there are a few indoles that are sold as lsd but not many that are common in the recreational markets and none that have any sort of reputation for for problems and and like you were saying millions of people in this country alone take drugs recreationally and don't necessarily fall under the category of a drug addict but now because there's so many different types of drugs out there it's without services like what dance safe provides and people are inevitably going to take drugs, but without services like what Dance Safe provides, they're basically playing Russian roulette. 
Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's, I often I, I often sort of quip that it's a it's a, a very frightening time to be a recreational drug user right mm-hmm. now. It's uh, you know you mentioned you're in your you know mid twenties. Uh, you know I'm in my mid thirties and I've been in the scene you know for over twenty years now. Uh, and not that you know even twenty years ago there was a lot of there was misrepresentation. There was people who didn't necessarily know enough about the substances they were taking. Uh, but. Not like now, you know, we didn't have these labs in China that would pump out thousands mm-hmm. of kilos of research chemicals on demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, uh, the dark web where mm-hmm. people would order anything they want to order. Uh, we didn't have these massive price differences between illegal drugs and legal you know, quasi-legal research chemicals that could be misrepresented as those drugs. We didn't have cryptocurrency. We didn't have cryptocurrency. uh, And so it it is. It's a a different dynamic now than it was even 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, we have started to see – so the the MDMA market – And I I guess I don't need to ask the next question, how adulterated are the recreational drug markets? Because we've basically just covered that. Yeah. (laughs) The the answer is is – Substantially, yeah, they're substantially adulterated. Uh, the MDMA market, you know, we, historically, we for the last few years we've been seeing about fifty-fifty. Uh, if somebody brought something to the booth to test, there was about a fifty-fifty chance that it was not going to be MDMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, that number has actually gotten a little better over the last few years. Uh, we've seen an, an increase in the amount of real MDMA on the market. Mm. Uh, part of that is that there's new precursors that people have discovered. Mm. So you no longer need to go to the jungles of, uh, of Indonesia and get saffron oil. Now you can take things that are available in almost any industrialized society mm-hmm. and get to MDMA from them. And because of that, uh, I think that's one of the big reasons that we've seen an increase in real MDMA. And uh, the people who discovered these new precursors, rather than keeping that knowledge proprietary and probably becoming, if not multimillionaires, potentially billionaires, <laughs> uh, decided to publish these recipes. Uh, they had actually decided that they were sick of the adulterated market. They wanted there to be real MDMA out there. And so they published these recipes of how wow. to get from these sort of more commonly available precursors to MDMA. What what are the legal consequences of doing something like that? Oh, I mean severe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even yeah, it's it's it, often people will read a synthesis for MDMA, particularly college kids who maybe have mm. a year or two of organic mm. chemistry, and they come to the conclusion that this is something they could probably technically do. Mm. Uh, you know, LSD manufacturing is extremely difficult; requires equipment that is very specialized. There's a reason that they've only busted you know a, a half a dozen or you know eight LSD labs in the history of, of LSD. And a lot of them have been professional chemists and professors. Almost all of them. Yeah. yeah, almost all of them have had PhDs. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very common for that to be the case because it requires that level of sophistication to, mm-hmm. to manufacture LSD. Uh, MDMA is not like that. MDMA is, is easier to manufacture than than that. Uh, it's not the quite the shake-and-bake methamphetamine that's so popular in the mm-hmm. South. It's not quite that easy, but people often come to the conclusion when they look at these things that like, Oh, I, th- I think I could do this. Mm. Uh, and I, I have people say that sometimes they're like, Oh, I looked over the, the recipe and I felt like this is something I could technically do. And I was like, you should probably look at the mandatory minimums for manufacturing MDMA in your state. <laughs> That's the other side of the equation, right? Don't just decide that you could technically do this. You should look at what will happen if they find you, because there's no, I was just doing it for me and my friend's exemption yeah. to these manufacturing laws, right? If you're manufacturing, you're manufacturing, they treat it as you are a drug cook. Um, often we're talking about a mandatory minimum of you know 15 or 20 years uh really severe legal consequences and the likelihood of being caught now with, s- with social media yeah, and people talk pe- people putting <laughs> alexas in their houses and 
you know, like, what are you going to, what is your every communication with everyone going to be in code? Yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I, I really recommend that people, uh, fight these fights legislatively although uh rather than deciding they're going to rather than deciding they're going to manufacture these things to, to <laughs> fix the adulterated market uh although there there is an argument to be made right that this is this is another part of the fight is that if without people willing to do these very dangerous things i mean that, I, I guess you could compare it to speakeasies back during the prohibition sure, sure. And that sort it's, of thing. it's a it's a controversial position to take it, it is it is controversial definitely uh but yeah you know at the end of the day if uh if there's nobody out there manufacturing these substances, then all we have is adulterated markets, right? Mm-hmm. Then we only have adulterated uh, substances, and some of them are, you know, orders of magnitude more dangerous than the drugs that they're replacing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you, like you said, we're, we're, DanSafe plays the same game of catch up that law enforcement plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the absolute worst thing that I ever have to tell somebody when they bring a substance to the DanSafe booth and we test it is I can give you a list of 35 things this isn't. But I can't tell you what it is. Mm. And that's something that happens. I mean, it happens on a, on a I don't want to say super regular basis, but often enough that, you know, every season, because the way the kits work is that there's different mm-hmm. reagents and they have known color reactions for certain substances, right? So we know that this reagent on this substance will do this color reaction. And if you do four or eight tests, depending on how, how specific you're trying to be or how unusual the substance is, but if you do those tests... And even one of those reactions isn't the same. Mm-hmm. That means you have a different substance. Mm-hmm. That means it's not on the chart, right? And sometimes we get stuff that's just wild. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, there, it's like nothing on the chart. But even if just one is off, all I can tell this person is this isn't any drug mm-hmm. that's on this chart. I don't know. Here's this ecstasydata.org laboratory. And like you were saying earlier, <laughs> nine times out of ten, when you get those test results back, those people are going to be like, I'm not taking it if I oh, don't know what the hell I mean, it when, is. When I can't tell them what it is, they, they, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's ever told me they were going to take it, realistically. Yeah. To, to reiterate, it sounds like you probably prevent a lot of drug, drug usage just by providing the information for people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's I think that's pretty pretty clearly the case. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's a totally unknown substance, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And recently, we've started to see the the ketamine market has taken a, a serious nosedive in terms of the amount of real ketamine that's being sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to see a whole galaxy of uh, actually PCP analogs being misrepresented as ketamine because they're both dissociatives. Mm-hmm. They're sort of in the same neighborhood uh, pharmacologically. And so, and dissociatives can be dangerous, like opiates too. They can suppress breathing and suppress. Oh heart yeah, rhythm. yep. And now we have one that three uh, methoxy uh, PCP, so three meo PCP, has been sold as ketamine, and it's a severe dissociative. But also behaviorally, people tend to be up and about, mm-hmm. so they are just as out of it as they would be in like a complete K hole, where like they just don't know what's going on around them. But instead of being stuck on the couch, they're up running around a field. <laughs> and it's so a, they could be doing things and then have oh, no recollection. Oh, yeah. of doing them basically oh yeah yeah and this one is being sold as ketamine we're seeing this one being sold as ketamine all over the country that is very concerning yeah yeah <laughs> and so people often are not used to testing their their ketamine even mm-hmm. people who test their they test their mdma they test their blotter mm-hmm. they know that ketamine is is visually quite distinct it mm-hmm. you know tends to look not like as much of as a drug but it's sort of like almost table salty it's got a mm-hmm. sort of very distinct crystalline structure and a lot of these research chemicals, uh, because they're in the same neighborhood, they actually look the same visually. So people are, have this idea that, oh, I can look at this baggie and I know what ketamine looks like. And it's mm-hmm. like, you, you just don't. You know what that family of drugs looks like. But ketamine is not the only one 
anymore being sold as ketamine. Uh, That's another great ar- argument for the services that you guys provide, yeah. that people should not be in this day and age eyeballing whatever it is they're going yeah. to consume. Yeah, or they'll think they can smell. You know, you, mm. you have people tell you all sorts of ridiculous reasons why they, they didn't think they needed to test, right? I mean, mm. I, I know what it looks like. I, I trust my guy. That I trust dri- my guy. I know what it smells like. I know what, I, what it tastes right, like, right. et cetera. Right, and the, the I trust my guy argument is an important one to address because people really do feel that way. It's not about mm. trusting your guy. It's about trusting your guy's guys, 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 mm-hmm. guys, guys, guy. Who is not a guy you would invite to dinner, I promise. <laughs> right? I promise you that guy is not someone you would hang out with socially. And so because we do, we'll see the entire East Coast at once get hit with a new research chemical. Mm-hmm. You know, We'll see it from New York to Florida in, in a week or two. So we know that this adulteration or this misrepresentation, I should say, we know that this is happening – really, really, really far up the distribution chain. Mm -hmm. This is not generally... I I honestly suspect that most people who get sold an adulterated drug, something that wasn't, or a misrepresented drug, something that wasn't what they thought it was, I think the vast majority of dealers who who actually sold it to the end user had no idea that they were selling something other than what they thought they were selling. Mm -hmm. I think most of those sort of, you know, quote unquote, street level dealers, although really I think in this community, we should probably call them tent level dealers, right? (laughs) But (laughs) most of those guys, those people at the sort of uh, retail level of drug dealing. They're not scientists handing beakers to each other they're not scientists (laughs) um they're you know people who are maybe trying to hook up their friends yeah people who are maybe trying to cover their the cost that they they spent to be at the festival Mm. you know these aren't guys who are bringing you know kilos of methalone over from china no they're buying an ounce of what they were told was molly these aren't the guys flying the single engine cessna they're not flying single engine cessnas (laughs) in although now with a lot of the quasi-legal ones uh customs will seize them even if they're legal Mm. um customs does not have to only take things that are illegal they can take there's something i think it's called the the general health and safety exemption. So basically, they won't, they won't even let you dangerous. take certain foods and right. drinks. Right, right. You can't bring in cheese, right? The cheese isn't illegal. You just can't legally import it. Mm. And so, uh, but for a lot of the legal ones, as long as your paperwork was in order and as long as you haven't been caught selling them for human use, the worst that's going to happen is they take your drugs. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like the risk versus financial reward of the, the grand universe of drug dealing, mm-hmm. that's real low. Right. I mean, we have people serving life sentences for possession of drugs, not selling possession of drugs. But if you get caught with a shipping container of research chemicals, (laughs) all that's going to happen is you lose the shipping container. Uh, There's there's a financial reason that people do this. Right. I mean, and that's part of it is that the as long as these people are careful and they're they're cagey and maybe they have a legal person on staff. Well, and, and it's and that that corruption can go way up the chain. Yeah, yeah. On the opposite end, I mean, we've got the the pharmaceutical industry. It's easy to implicate them in the recent attempt to ban kratom. Yep. Uh, if if that's how it's pronounced, I believe yeah, I think, it's I, think, I think I think you got it right. Yeah, which <laughs> which has opiate properties but is not technically an opiate and right right so it triggers the same receptors right? yeah but it's not actually an opiate yeah and 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 it's in it's in bali and it's in like yeah sutra and all these other herbs that people can usually just go to a botanical company and buy yeah and and the pharmaceutical companies as well i mean there's there's clear cases where they definitely knew that doctors were writing prescription numbers that were wildly outside mm-hmm. the sort of bell curve of what most doctors were prescribing and they don't report these people to law enforcement, right? It's yeah, and I mean, I'm, I we're kind of delving into the into the the realm of 
conspiracy, but <laughs> is it really so hard to believe that they want to focus on their bottom line and keep their profits up by keeping people addicted right. to dangerous manufactured opioids when they could be taking a tea or smoking marijuana or taking CBD oil? There's all these alternatives that, right. no, that a lot of people say work. Um, children being given CBD for their epileptic seizures and people with Parkinson's taking CBD and seeing their symptoms immediately alleviated. I personally get the impression that they don't want this. Yeah, no, I mean, money is a profoundly uh, a profoundly uh, influential thing in some people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if somebody hoarded literally anything other than money, the mm-hmm. way that we look up to people who hoard money, we would call them crazy. We'd call right? them hoarders. Right. Anyone, anyone, with a, <laughs> anyone with a million cats, right? We have a word for someone with a million cats. But a word for someone with a, a billion dollars, mm-hmm. for some reason, we don't apply that same, that same terminology. We don't think of it the same way. Well, it's like the line between greed and success has been blurred. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and really blurred recently, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, not get, let's not get super political. But uh, <laughs> this idea that, that wealth automatically equates to, to virtue is a, is a dangerous one. Yeah, it's a dangerous idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, so to get back to the question we asked a while ago, yeah, the, uh, the markets are heavily misrepresented. They're heavily adulterated, um, and that's a lot of the a lot of what we're trying to deal with is this. I you know, it's not all that Dance Safe does. Dance Safe does a lot mm. of different things. Yeah, I was uh, surprised to to hear how many different things that you offer. Yeah, we're sort of gen- general testing. general harm reductionists, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of what we do applies uh, even if we lived in a world with legal regulated access to MDMA. Uh, we would still be at events trying to educate people. We would still be giving out a lot of free water. We give out tons of free water and, and electrolytes. Uh, earplugs are a, a huge thing. You know, spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on earplugs that we give away for free. Uh, and so our, a lot of what we do would still be happening even under sort of the ideal world of what these things would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what we focus on with the with the testing in particular really is a problem of of drug prohibition. It really Mm -hmm. is a problem that only exists because these things are illegal. But a serious problem and one that that people don't realize is even an an issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, A story that used to be a one-off story that I told but has now actually happened three times is somebody coming to the booth and saying, hey, so I tried something last night. And I've always gotten my my Molly from the same guy. I trust him. I know him. You know, I couldn't find him or, you know, I didn't have time to meet up with him. And so I had to get something different last night. I had to get it from a stranger. And I've, like, never been high like that, like, ever. I've never felt like that. So I need you to test this and tell me what the hell I took last night. Mm. You know, they're often very concerned that they felt so different than they have felt, you know, from the previous dozen or two times. They want to know what they put in their bodies. they want to know what they put in their bodies. And we test it, and it's MDMA. So what's been happening is that their guy, who's been their steady guy, has been, has been them selling them research chemicals for a year, year and a half. And then they get the real thing and they are unfamiliar with it. Right. And they think that they've been taking that thing and they're, they're right. a veteran and they're experienced right. with that. Because these, a lot of these substances are, are pharmacologically close to MDMA. They're chemically similar to MDMA. I've heard of MDA. Uh, yeah, MDA is one that often 
we, we, we see it quite often, but not sold as MDMA, hmm. right? People, MDA is a, a recreational drug in its own right. Hmm. Uh, it has its own street slang. It's something that people actively are looking for often hmm. more than MDMA. Hmm. Uh, people really, re- there's, there's a certain group of people that really like MDA and so they, they're looking for it. So hmm. we, we do see it, but often sold as actually a lot of times what we'll see is, is people purchasing what they were told was MDA. And then when we tested it, it's MDMA because <laughs> it's, it's harder to get. It's hard, you know, it's a little <laughs> bit higher price point so we, we actually see mdma as a misrepresented substance as well right so this this is a, a sort of fluid dynamic that happens with drug markets where mm-hmm. like i said these things are marketing terms right mm-hmm. it's it's not about it's just because someone says molly doesn't mean anything yeah um and with the like i said with the with the medical research people are starting to think that oh man mdma is just like totally safe because they see all this medical research and they extrapolate from the, the the medical setting to the recreational setting. It's like these people were not dancing for 11 hours. <laughs> that yeah. was not what's happening. They were in a controlled setting with doctors. They were in a controlled setting with a doctor. Um, and I want to – you know, so there's a, there's a movie coming out uh, soon. They're, they're pretty much done filming. They're sort of in, in post right now uh-huh. uh, called MDMA the Movie. So you can actually find it at mdmathemovie.com. Where for the first time, they've actually filmed someone from the entire process of severe, severe, severe PTSD going through uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Wow. And at the end of it, really not meet, not being in that place anymore. I mean, they're really a very different person at the end of this filming. There was a similar controlled study with psilocybin where uh, several of the participants had completely remissed and the rest of them had seen their depression or mental issues alleviated for, oh, months, for months at an, at, at an end. You're talking about the, the psilocybin, uh, people with terminal cancer dealing with end of life. Was that the end of life study you're talking about? Um, I wasn't talking about that one, but, oh, okay. but I, w- I was talking about another one with um, veterans with PTSD. Oh, using where, psilocybin. Yeah. Oh, I, yep. I hadn't caught that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally a little more skeptical of classical psychedelics as mm-hmm. a, a PTSD treatment. Uh-huh. Oh, the, the, uh, the Channel 4 Drugs live broadcast study did oh. the uh did the psilocybin one okay and then um and then yeah i got the stuff from maps on here cool yeah i'll check that out yeah mdma in terms of medical use is is a, a really promising substance it's mm-hmm. something that I, th- I think has a lot of potential uh there's a lot of misunderstanding when people first hear about this they think that it's uh mdma being given as like a prescription for ptsd mm-hmm. where people would be taking mm-hmm. it home they take it every week for the rest of their lives and oh how could this possibly be healthy and and actually that would be that would be a correct analysis of the situation <laughs> if this was being used as a prescription drug in that sense that would actually be i would i would share those people's concerns whereas these are more like temporary treatment programs, right? It's, that, that yield positive results, right? Right. It's it's people go through a, a, a treatment process, mm-hmm. uh, and at the end of that process, they don't continue to take MDMA. Uh, a lot of them stay in therapy just because mm-hmm. PTSD is such a oh yeah you know such a problem that a lot of them end up staying in therapy. But most uh, mental issues require continuous therapy, right? Um, but you know, a lot of these people at the end of these sessions just don't meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD anymore. And we're not used to talking about anything curing PTSD, Mm -hmm. but this is a treatment protocol that really does seem to that, that word seems to fit what's happening. So we're going to have to start talking about this in a really different way. Yeah. I found a quote from the channel Four drugs live broadcast study when they did one on MDMA 
And it says, our findings suggest that MDMA may enable PTSD patients to access negative memories without a feeling of overwhelming threat, which could enable subjects to better confront and wash out their traumatic experiences. The scans have also shown that MDMA reduces the connectivity, that is, the degree of synchronization between two important connector hubs in the brain that show elevated connectivity and depression. The findings suggest that, like psilocybin, MDMA could be valuable in the treatment of depression by breaking over rigid interest perspective thinking patterns and that makes a lot of sense and it actually kind of makes me think of the way that they're trying to use virtual reality to treat people for traumatic experiences because right. it allows them a safe non-traumatic non-terrifying way to return to those memories and experiences right ver- versus it being painful and excruciating yeah. and scary yeah. to have to return to those memories yeah i mean all of this is super <clears throat> speculative right worth the because of uh there was a lot of research going on mm. into this in the in the 60s and 70s into psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Mm. And because of the crackdown that happened where all of these were placed into schedule 1, there was this massive backlash against psychedelics. Basically in terms of scientific research, we are currently so we've been doing this research now for 5 6 years, right? So we're basically at 1975 <laughs> in terms of this research mm. if if that hadn't been halted. So think of what like a computer looked like in 75, mm. think of what a, a camera looked like in 75. That's where we are in terms of psychedelic psychotherapy because of the crackdown that happened. And we're still using internal combustion engines. Right, we're right. <laughs> there's, right, are, right. there's areas where we've just there's refused to where, advance. There's areas where we refuse to advance, but this is one where the research was actually uh, uh, halted in its tracks by by drug prohibition, mm-hmm. and so we've been set back, you know, forty years in this research. But the the stuff that's starting to happen now, because we have some tools that we didn't have then, I think is going to progress really quickly. Right? Mm-hmm. We didn't have high high resolution brain scans mm-hmm. back then. Now we can actually look at what's happening in the brain when people undergo these things. They can do three D laser laser scans. Right. Now. Right. And so we have this uh this there's this idea that you you just brought up that what's happening is people have with PTSD in particular, have really, really rigidly linked their emotional memory of these events and their episodic memories of these mm-hmm. events, right? So the whenever they think about whatever the thing was that triggered their PTSD... They feel the way they, they did. They feel it. And when they take MDMA, uh, it it there's activity in your amygdala, you're flooding mm-hmm. your brain with serotonin. It's When you say something feels good, you're talking about serotonin in your brain. Mm-hmm. MDMA is actually, that is what feels good, right? The mm-hmm. chemical process of what MDMA does is what you talk about as feeling good, is mm-hmm. the release of serotonin in your brain. And so they really have been chemically inhibited for the duration of that experience mm-hmm. from accessing that emotional pain in the way that they usually access it. They, mm-hmm. they just, they can't do that. Their, their brains will not allow fear or anger or yeah, they're kicking off adrenaline and anxiety versus right. Having those things quelled. Right. And so by working through the therapy, you're able to sort of delink the emotional and episodic mm-hmm. memory. And that's, that's a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that realistically, I can't imagine any moral argument for not, funding this research for not allowing this research for not supporting this research you know we have we have now had i think we're in our 10th year in a row now 
where we have lost more U.S. service people to suicide than combat. Mm-hmm. You know, more people are dying from suicide than are dying in combat missions in our military, and that is just <clears throat> unacceptable. Anything we can do, even if this was taking MDMA once a month for the rest <laughs> of their lives, even if this is what that was. A lot of people take medications for the rest people, of their lives. Lots of people take medications for the rest of their lives. And that's not what this is. We're talking about, yeah. a, we're talking about a, you know, a couple months of therapy uh, done in adjunct with MDMA. Uh, there's actually a conference coming up in uh, late April in California called Psychedelic Science. Mm-hmm. It's put on mm-hmm. by MAPS and a couple other organizations are also sort of have their have their hands in the, in the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, where if anyone is interested in this, in this subject, I highly recommend – looking at this conference, maybe coming out to California for it. It's in the Bay area. It's in Oakland. Um, and it's people presenting all of their findings on MDMA assisted psychotherapy on people doing research with Ibogaine, which is a, a whole other, you could do a whole show about Ibogaine. It's a, a <laughs> drug from, uh, that's used in some traditional cultures in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, that actually seems to chemically change people's brains in a way that they no longer crave opiates that the way they did before. It's a interesting, really p- potential. I mean, this is, Again, this is baby research, right? Baby steps. Yeah. Um, but that's what some of the research seems to suggest. It's really, really a powerful, powerful substance, but it's Schedule 1 in this country because it makes you hallucinate, and anything that makes you hallucinate immediately gets thrown into Schedule 1. Because yep. altered mind states are presumed to be bad. Altered mind states are obviously wrong, right? There's this idea that if you're yeah. sober, you're perceiving the world correctly, and anything other than that must be dangerous, um, You know, despite the fact that you know handing someone uh, – a like I said, there are a lot of things that are sold as LSD that are very dangerous. We don't have any confirmed deaths from what we would really call LSD toxicity, right? Mm-hmm. There are behavioral deaths. People have taken yeah. LSD and run out into traffic. That is ha- that's ha- stuff like that. And then happened. there's the the so-called acid casualties where they basically dose themselves into mental illness. Yeah, but you know, even with those cases. Um, Almost universally, there was a family history of severe mental illness, right? So it's, it who, just exacerbates or participates, it, right. precipitates something that was already right. a pre-existing That, that seems condition. to be what's happening with those situations is that these are people who had a predisposition to mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are reports in the medical literature of people who accidentally consumed – it's a little hard to know because we're working off of blood serum levels, right? Because you, you don't – you obviously can't know how much drug a person took. You have to mm-hmm. go off of blood serum metabolites. But mm-hmm. somewhere in the neighborhood of three to 7,000 – doses of LSD and lived. This is, this is a report that exists wow. in the medical literature. That person was psychologically fine after a period of time. I believe it was several weeks. Um, I'm sure they were out of their minds for a while, but, right, right. So <laughs> but the, then returned the, to a, a good right. place. So this was a person who found a glass jar of white powder that they thought was cocaine. It was actually crystalline LSD where a gram of crystal LSD oh is 10,000 doses, right? <laughs> so, but if you think about that, Let's go on the extreme low end and let's say that it was maybe just 2,500 doses of LSD. <laughs> if you think of a shot glass of water as a dose of water, you wouldn't get anywhere near 2,500 shot glasses of water before you killed yourself mm-hmm. with water. So just in terms of pure pharmacological safety, we're talking about something that is just demonstrably safer than drinking too much water. <laughs> uh, and so the fact that we treat that as – something that people can go to jail for the rest of their lives just for simple possession if they have too much of it. The fact that if you manufacture it – In certain counties, that is. In certain counties, the fact that if you're caught manufacturing it, you can go to jail for – I mean you do go to jail for – 
basically forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have people like people like Pickard, who was you know running that famous uh, missile silo acid lab, and in, in you know he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences for for manufacturing LSD. DMT is under the same category, is it? Another another drug, yeah. DMT is a drug that is almost certainly found in the human brain. There's there's some controversy over that, but there it's it's clear that it could be found in human cerebral spinal fluid. It's also derived is. from countless plants in it's varying. In, it's in almost yeah. It's in almost every. I mean, it's every continent has some plant that you could extract DMT from. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a, a, a park in Denver filled with Phalaris crab. I mean, there's. I mean, there's there's there. It's it's just in really prevalent in nature. You used to be able to buy a lot of the ingredients to to make ayahuasca from vitamin cottage you can't anymore right vitamin cottage ebay ebay for a long time was a sort of you know ebay was people's drug dealer for a very long time yeah you could (laughs) there was actually ebay sellers for years who were selling kits of ayahuasca right so it was the full it was uh both the leaves and the vine sold with like an instruction booklet i mean it was very clear what was going on and and nothing happened for years and years and years if you're unfamiliar with dmt i'm not advocating using psychoactive substances because there is a lot there are a lot of like we've been discussing with these studies there are a lot of precautions and a lot of controlled environments that these things take place in but if you want to know more and at least educate yourself and hear some personal testimonies and some of the pharmacology pharmacology and science surrounding DMT I'd recommend looking up DMT the spirit molecule yeah spectacular book or or visiting airwood.org and doing some research because there's a lot of information and um and it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that one in particular tends to people tend to go a little evangelical on that one. Too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> the, the, the sort of famous Joe Rogan rant, mm-hmm. you know, is, is uh, I think probably raised the awareness of DMT more than maybe any other. The spirit molecule is cool. The spirit molecule is full of evangelical DMT. Yeah, users. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, but again, these are people who are using it in a right. They're using uh, pharmaceutically produced DMT mm-hmm. in a controlled medical setting. Yep. Very, very different situation. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting universe. I think we, we we've sort of got a sidetracked here, which doesn't happen <laughs> when I start talking, start ranting about psychoactives. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it is it's 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 an interesting subject and one that there are some clear solutions to a lot of these problems, which we often don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times with you know you look at problems like global climate change, or you look at problems like you know wealth inequality. There's not a simple solution to anything, you know, these these problems. These are large, intractable, sort of really uh, complex problems that I think if there even are solutions, right, that that they're incredibly complex solutions. I think that the solutions are not being ignorant and certainly not criminalizing everything that you don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of – like I said, a lot of what we do is is pure drug education and, mm-hmm. and that would – be something that needs to continue no matter what the legislative environment is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when someone comes to the booth and we do a, a, a you know, we do drug checking and we test something and it, it tests positive as MDMA, we certainly never tell that person, oh, this pill is good or oh, this pill is safe. Mm-hmm. We never say words like that. We say this is a positive reaction for MDMA. Mm-hmm. Here's our MDMA info card. You should read about what this substance is. People have died from MDMA. You know, we generally explain that it's unusual, that it generally happens under you know hot environments where people aren't drinking enough water but Mm -hmm. that we do have some random mysterious deaths in history that we don't know why there's actually there are cases of serotonin toxicity like serotonin syndrome yeah those are almost always with uh somebody was on an ssri oh really oh yeah those are it's 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 not impossible with pure mdma to have serotonin syndrome but it's Mm -hmm. it's 
requires substantial dosing or other unusual environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one study that was done, I believe, with rats. It wasn't a human study for sure. It was an animal study. But they gave the animal uh, MDMA in a cool environment and MDMA in a hot environment. And the animals in the hot environment had more serotonistic uh, like uh, axon death. They had more of the uh, sort of uh, brain issues that are sort of known to happen with MDMA in the hot environment. So the hot environment actually increases the probability of right of those sorts of things. That happening. that would seem to be what this one animal study said, right? Yeah. Oh, you always want to be careful when you extrapolate from from animal studies to humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it makes sense if you look at it in terms of what we actually see in recreational markets as well, right? We don't see people undergoing this medical research having this idea of like, oh, I was so depressed the following Wednesday, right? This mm-hmm. idea of like the, you know, quote unquote, you know, the suicide Wednesday basically where like mm-hmm. people take MDMA on a weekend and then they feel extremely depressed midweek the the following week. We don't really see that with the medical use and they're taking similar doses. Really? Right. And so there may be other factors at play. These people are in therapy. Mm-hmm. They're generally already dealing with PTSD or depression, right? So maybe they're just already used to that so they don't report it as much or they don't notice it as much it's hard to know what's happening but combined with that animal study what we might be seeing here is that there are actually even below the levels of death right there might be differences between mdma in a cool environment and mdma in a hot environment in terms of neurological damage Mm -hmm. and so and and, but even with pure mdma there is evidence of serotonin axon damage Mm -hmm. the sort of uh don't want to get too super nerdy about uh, <laughs> n- neurology, but basically your serotonin axons extend throughout your entire brain. The serotonin mm-hmm. cell bodies are all in your brainstem, and then the axons extend through your whole brain. And the the axons in your forebrain, so in the very, very front so, of your so do you brain, have, do you get have, damaged. You have serotonin receptors in your entire brain, basically? Right. Um, but they're all extending out through from your brainstem. They're extending out like tree roots oh. in your brain. So there's not uh, – the serotonin axons are all throughout your brain. But the, the the cell body itself is is in your brainstem, and so these axons that are in your forebrain are the longest ones, right? They're they're stretched the furthest, and those are the ones that there is some evidence, even at recreational doses, of damage happening from recreational MDMA use. Mm. Now that being said, this is this is undeniably brain damage, right? We're talking about axons dying. Yeah. But the only way they can know that you've done this is through scanning your brain. There are no behavioral tests that indicate it. There are no emotional tests that indicate it. It doesn't really seem to change anything, which is unusual. It's weird. Right. Um, and, you know, you'll, you'll hear people joke like, okay, so it's, it's brain damage. But if they have to put me in a $10 million machine and scan me to know that I did this, <laughs> you know, is it brain damage that you're all that concerned about? You know, it's, it's, but, but it's a real decision, right? You have to know going in. Sure, yeah. J- just because it doesn't seem to do anything doesn't mean we know. We were really only, you know, 30 years into any MDMA use, maybe a little more than that now, 40, but, mm-hmm. you know, really only 20 into the sort of heavy recreational use. Do you know when it was first synthesized? It was the, uh, was it the Shulgin's. Uh, well, it was first synthesized in the 30s. But oh, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually synthesized as a way of existing in a, uh, or a way of subverting an existing patent on a chemical synthesis route so they they wanted to get from a to a to c and b was patented so they invented mdma as an alternate b basically to get to c it was not it was not invented as a drug it was invented as an intermediary to another drug um people often think that it was invented as a drug for like couples therapy or something because it was used early on for that but it was actually invented because of like weird german patent laws (laughs) so 
Kind of like how LSD was supposedly discovered when he spilled it on himself and had a psychedelic experience. Right, right. A lot of these things are, you know, the, the history of science is a history of fortuitous accidents that people took advantage of, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're sitting under the right tree at the right time when an apple knocks you across the face. Exactly. Like, that's, that's the whole history of science. And so MDMA is another one of those where this was not an attempt to develop a love drug. This was an attempt to ex- uh, evade an existing German copyright <laughs> <laughs> or patent, I mean. So... Yeah, weird, weird chemistry history of that. Uh, but yeah, it's it is. It's it's a substance that even in its even pure, even you know, even if you know you have MDMA, uh, you do. There are there are risks to that behavior, mm-hmm. and so it's not just weeding out misrepresentation. It's mm-hmm. not just weeding out adulteration. It's not just uh, it's not just anything. It's it's a whole family of harm reduction practices where you really have to sort of have a holistic view of these things and you have to you have to address these problems just because these deaths only happen in hot environments does not mean that we get to suddenly say oh uh MDMA safe yeah you know it's it doesn't mean that and so we have to address these things comprehensively and we have to look at this as a, as a systems problem. Mm. We have to address the fact that people are using MDMA in hot environments, right? So, okay, so it's, it's more dangerous in hot environments. That doesn't change people's consumption behavior. Yeah. Even when they know that, it doesn't change their consumption behavior. <laughs> you know, you'll hear people say, oh, man, it's really hot to roll today and then, like, down, <laughs> down it goes. You know, and so just because they know these things doesn't mean they're even necessarily going to change their behavior. But there are really concrete things that we can do. We can provide chill-out areas at events. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can provide Provide free water. You can mist people. There's a lot of things that you can do to to help mitigate the risks of this behavior. Yeah, we're about reaching the end of the show. Uh, there are a few more statistics I could probably throw out there in some quotes. Uh, in an article by CNN, there's a quote that says the facts are overwhelming. If the global drug trade were a country, it would have one of the top twenty economies in the world. Um, and then. There is one that's probably pretty ubiquitous or fairly famous. The United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prison population, making us the highest incarceration rate in the world. And then there was that Gallup poll statistic, uh, 60% of Americans as of October 19, 2016, support legalizing marijuana. Um, the war on drugs has cost $1 trillion in federal spending since Nixon declared it in 1971. It, just as recently as 2008, we were the number one country for illegal drug use, and we're still in the top five, and if not the top three in most charts. Um, mandatory, minimum, mandatory minimum sentencing, something you should definitely do some research about. Um, and last but not least, let's have you reiterate... A little bit of the information about Dance Safe, where people can find more information about you and things yeah, like that. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, our, the number of chapters we have tends to fluctuate pretty regularly. We add new chapters, occasionally chapters fall out, but we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 chapters right now. Uh, so, if you happen, you can go on our website and find a chapter map. If there's a chapter in the city near you, I highly recommend volunteering locally. What's the URL? Uh, dancesafe.org. Okay. Uh, and so, if you go to dancesafe.org and click on find a chapter, that, that map is actually currently broken, but should be fixed tomorrow. So, <laughs> nice. wait till tomorrow and we'll, nice. we'll get that chapter map working again for us uh and you and our training is online so you can go to dance safe you can sign up for our volunteer training once you've done the online training you can start finding a local chapter and working with them or if there's not a chapter in your area and you get a group together and you want to start a chapter you send me an email i'm the one who gets those emails when you say i want to start a chapter on our website where can people send you an email uh mitchell at dancesafe.org and there's also lots of forms on our website so all the forms are there fantastic uh, and ecstasydata.org is the website for the lab that Eurowid manages that, uh-huh. that uh, dance safe originally started so that's another great resource and 
yeah, I highly recommend uh, hitting up DanceSafe and finding us on Facebook. And we post a lot of great stuff. And yeah, I think that uh, even if you're not a partier, uh, if you're just somebody who cares about the health and safety of the community, it's it's a, an organization that's worth getting involved in and worth supporting. And I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk about it. Thank you so much, Mitchell. You've been a wealth of information. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I found this quote just before I came into the studio today, and I thought it would be an appropriate one to end the show with. Regardless of your religious beliefs or your stance on drug use, I think this is a pretty resonating quote. Those drug addicts you're judging are not just some junkies and losers who deserve to die. They're actually good people with good hearts who made some bad decisions in life, as we all do. So if you can't help them, don't hurt them. And instead of judging them, pray for them. You've been listening to The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I hope everybody has a wonderful night. A disclaimer. Drugs are bad, okay? If you do them, you're bad, because drugs are bad, okay? It's a bad thing to do drugs, so don't be bad by doing drugs, okay? Because that'd be bad, because drugs are bad, okay?